You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season, host Lisa Greenwood, co-host Gil Rindle, and special guests from diverse theological perspectives discuss what core values and truths to carry forward and include in the new emerging church. What values and truths will you carry forward? Join our weekly email, contact us, and find more resources from Leadership Ministry at tmf-fdn.org. Hi, friends. I'm Lisa Greenwood, back with my co-host for this season, dear friend, Gil Rendell. Hey, Gil. Hey, Lisa. Good to be with you. Looking forward to this conversation. So in this season, we are inviting guests to help us dig even deeper into the themes from Gil's short paper, Jacob's Bones. And if you haven't downloaded that paper already, I hope you will. It's free on our website and the link is in the show notes. So you know this about Gil, but he has a way of taking complex cultural realities that can be mind-boggling and then frame them in a way that is easy to understand, and that really provokes us into conversation and thoughtful imagination for what might be. So the question at the heart of this paper is, what bones, that is, core values, truths, practices, will rest at the center and be the foundation for a new organizational institution, that is, the the church that is emerging? So, Gail, I'm curious, you know, what new reflections or observations you've had since writing Jacob's Bones last fall? Well, I guess the reflections and the connections have have continued. Um, I wrote that uh, short paper about 10 months ago, and those papers are always meant uh, not to be an answer to anything, but to to be a conversation starter. Can we start talking about this and try to frame it? And so, uh, you know, as much as I hope that for others, that certainly has happened for me. You know, it has really kind of continued to keep me cranking. And it's probably going to end up as a book because I've discovered that, you know, uh, there, that there is so much here. But if I was going to reflect on one part, it would be simply that, uh, you know, that there is this human search for meaning, this deep, deep human search for meaning. And meaning, uh, in, in the way that I'm, I'm referring to it here, uh, has to do with us being able to find a story that explains to us, the world in the way that the world is. It helps us to understand the world. And then it helps us to understand our place in that world. And so this gets played out in in so many ways, in so many uh, different parts of our lives. But the issue of Jacob's bones is that the the church has such a story. Hmm. The church has a story that can tell us about the way that the world is under the creative hand of God in which we are equally born and birthed and filled with hope along with all other people, no one excluded. Hmm. And if that's the world, then it helps us to find our place in it. So what I mean by finding our place in it, it then it kind of gives us a way to be. If that's what we understand the world is, if that's what we believe, then it gets translated into behavior. It gets translated into the way we relate to other people. And so what I'm what I'm after here is that um, I think that's the heart of the search of all people at all times. Uh, and that if we're talking about Jacob's bones, this is the treasure the church has always had. Mm. This is the treasure that the church is trying to forward into the future. 
And uh, we need we need to be able to kind of separate that out as the treasure that has to be held while everything else is secondary to it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about, you know, here we are, you know, we've we've recently gone through May 1st and we have now the division between what is to be the global uh, Methodist Church and the continuing United Methodist Church and all of the leaders and all the other people are working really, really hard on this. Uh, and uh, what I'm aware of is that they are working hard at solving all the problems connected to it, meaning solving all of the organizational denominational problems about how are we going to do this. And it occurs to me that the more that we concentrate on problems and doing, the more we risk leaving be the treasure behind. Mm. That this really isn't about you know, roles of bishops or ownership of property or or any of that other kinds of stuff. What it really is, is that we hold a treasure that we need to be able to move forward in terms of of uh, how the world is under the creative hand of God. So, uh, you know, I, I, maybe that's, uh, you know, jumping too deep, too quick. Uh, all I know is that you have to get back to what is central, uh, what is purpose at the heart of it, uh, and that... Um, that there is so much to distract. And that's why I think we're going to find the conversation with Andy Crouch so helpful because, uh, you know, it really is this world we live in that is so technologically driven that distracts us from so many things about not only what we do, but what we now can do in an enhanced way with technology that, that we risk leaving behind Jacob's bones. We, you know, the real, the real core stuff. Right. So right. Um, more than you asked probably, but here we are. <laughs> No, actually, I think so helpful, Gil, because, I mean, what you've done essentially is frame why we're even having this season of the podcast is, is it's an invitation to get in touch with our story and the larger story and the treasure that is held in those clay jars and not to focus on the, the clay jar, right? But, but the treasure right. and, right. Um, and, and then we've invited all these conversation partners throughout the season to help us do that, to help us identify what's at the core, what's at the heart, what's, what matters most that helps us understand the larger story, but also our place in it, um, which then guides our practices, behaviors, values, yeah, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah. I, beautifully done. Thanks, Gil. <laughs> well, and, and then, you know, the thing, and I invite listeners uh, in the same way that uh, what I've been realizing as we're in these conversations, it isn't just what I'm hearing. I'm also beginning to have a sense of what I'm not hearing. Hmm. Uh, and so often what I'm, I'm not hearing is all of the hard work everybody's doing to fix problems. Uh, uh, you know, and all of this, all of the, uh, the fix-its and the, and the solutions and the, you know, gotta-dos and all that kind of stuff. And so, I think that, you know, the more we can hold that stuff very, very loosely, uh, the more we're able to hold tighter to the real gift of the faith and, and the real purpose. So as you mentioned, our conversation today is with Andy Crouch. So let me just say a word about him and then we'll, we'll jump into that interview. But Andy Crouch is the author of four books. He is also a partner for theology and culture at Praxis an organization that works as a creative engine for redemptive entrepreneurship. For more than 10 years, Andy was a producer and then executive editor at Christianity Today. 
His work and writing have been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Time, uh, Best Christian Writing, Best Spiritual Writing. Um, he was a delight to talk to. I mean, we we just were so energized by the conversation. So, Gil, will you say a word about what stood out for you in this interview with Andy? Well, uh, yeah, the, the, I think uh, Andy was really helpful for me um, dealing with the whole issue about the seduction of, the, uh, of technology uh, with the notion that it's an important way that's going to make life easier for us. It's, so, it's mm-hmm. somehow going to do something for us. And uh, in part in the conversation we had, but also in some of his writings, one of the things that he's real clear about is is not so much that technology does more for us. It simply requires less of us. Yes. You know, it, it kind of enables us to do some things that we don't have to do anymore. Therefore, we don't get involved. And if anything, it isn't as if technology enriches us. It simply makes us more passive. Yeah. And that we end up having to accommodate the world of technology rather than t- technology helping us to enrich our own worlds. Okay, so you get that kind of stuff set up. And so you, you think about uh, this pandemic that we've just gone through in which so many people didn't get up on Sunday morning and go to church. What they did is that they simply walked into their study or wherever their computer is and they got on Zoom. Here we are. Technology has now required less of us. And so I'm wondering whether or not, you know, uh, that seduction is is at the point where right now we're developing a kind of a Christian community that feels as if it takes less and less to be part of it. I mean, all you have to do is make another cup of coffee and uh, at least, uh, you know, change the top part of what you're wearing uh, and leave the pajamas on the bottom. Uh, so what I'm saying is that, you know, you have this issue with technology. And so uh, the thing that I was really reflecting on when we talked with Andy was that he didn't try to counter that by making us more tech savvy. Instead, he talked to to us in, in this conversation about being more of who we actually are as people. Mm-hmm. He would refer back to, you know, the ancient Christian community that was in the, in the New Testament. You know, it isn't about moving ahead to figure out how to be really great with technology. It's about remembering from the back how to be really good community. Yeah. And so this was not nostalgia. This was not, um, you know, kind of a a Luddite position of, of spurning technology. Uh, this was really saying that uh, as, as people, if we want to really be human people, if we really want to be Christian community, um, we still have the same authentic work to do. So that's where yes. I was. Yes. Yes. And he doesn't just leave us in a place of saying, then, then, you know, leave all the technology behind. Like you said, he's not a Luddite. He's not, he's not saying that, but he's, he's inviting us to shift our thinking to think of our devices as a tool or an instrument to do the very work of community and connecting so that it doesn't uh, send us to and capture us in a, in a um, passive place, but it actually becomes a tool to, to connect and, and to do the work of community. Yeah. And in a real sense, um, the work hasn't changed. You know, the real value of what we find within the Christian faith that we find within the Christian community uh, hasn't changed. The tools we use to do it 
might invite us to do it in different ways. But you, you're still, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, if you want to be a human, you still have to have skin in the game. Yes. Yeah. So let's listen to our conversation with Andy. So, hi, Andy. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. Really a pleasure. Well, we're looking forward to it. I want to jump right in. Uh, The title of your book is The Life We're Looking For. And you do a remarkable job in the first part of the book naming how we have been essentially seduced into a vision of human flourishing that's really false. So let's start there. Let's start with the deficit. Can you describe this false vision of human flourishing? Well, I think there's maybe two directions to describe it. One is from the direction of the effects that we're all feeling, and the other is from the direction of maybe its origin. And the effects that we're feeling, you know, can be summed up by saying we're we're the most powerful, affluent people who have ever lived by almost any measure. Uh, And maybe also, by the way, the safest in terms of just everyday harms, illnesses, and all that. And we are clearly not the happiest. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to say that uh, we're the least happy in history because there are some very unhappy times in history, but there's, there's this mismatch between how well things are going for our society writ large materially, you might say. And, re- and really many of us, if for all the challenges of any individual or family's lives, uh, just how many things are easier for us than ever. And how much, how little positive payoff there seems to be. Instead, we're in things like, uh, as we're recording just last week, the New York Times had this big article on the epidemic of loneliness, which is something people have been writing about acutely for um, about a decade now. We're seeing crises in mental health. We're seeing a a regression in uh, life expectancy among residents of the most uh, so-called technologically developed cultures. And all of this seems to signal that somehow um, the dream we've been chasing is not paying off in the way that we probably expected. So that's like the consequence side. And then the what I argue in the book is that at the dawn of the modern era, when we started to figure out how the world worked, thanks to science, in a new way, a new dimension of uh, understanding of the world, we, what we imagined we would do <laughs> was the wrong thing. We, we uh, dreamed the wrong dream. And in the book, I call it the dream of magic. We dreamed of, of effortless power. And in certain respects, in certain domains, we've achieved that. But the dream of magic has always been seen uh, through the history of um, the Jewish and Christian traditions as a false dream and as something that was specifically something you're not supposed to pursue. But I think it's become the dream of our culture, and it's what's driven the development of what we call technology in ways that turn out to be exactly as damaging as magic was always said to be. But we haven't seen it that way because we think we're modern, secular people. In fact, I think we're chasing a pagan, even I would, I would venture to say demonic dream that is not working out well for human beings. So that's the kind of big picture of the book. Does that make sense? Is that seem like a fair summary? Well, it, it certainly does for the first half of the book, yeah, yeah, if you right. will, right? There's more to the story, but yeah. And so I, I want to just, um, why don't we just kind of finish out that picture? And um, there, you actually say there, you know, with the title, there is a life we're looking for. There's a better, truer vision for human flourishing. And so will you just say a word about that? Yes. And this is uh, the life that we were all looking for the moment we were born. I Mm -hmm. start the book with uh, what we're looking for at the moment of birth. And 
one way to, if you want just a single word, it's recognition, it's personal encounter. There's this astonishing capability that babies have, human babies, when they're born, immediately uh, uh, to begin searching for a face. And if they're sighted, like most babies are, of course, they actually, their their brain lights up when they see a human face within that six to eight inches that the baby's eyes can focus at that stage of life. If they're not sighted, they're able to reach out with their hands very early in life. And the same neural circuitry lights up because we're just built to learn that or we're built to expect that there's another person out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and of course, eventually many persons who are going to encounter us, who we come in just trusting and believing they will love us. And in fact, none of us make it to adulthood unless somebody does. And that quest, you know, at one level for recognition, at another level for love, um, another way of putting it is the quest for personhood to be seen and known as a person. Yeah is the great adventure of life. And all of us came into the world hoping it was there. And all of us, to some extent, found it. And in other ways, found the world disappointing us in that quest. And that's the drama of our lives. But it's also the drama into which technology comes to play such an important and sometimes distorting uh, role, you might say. Well, Andy, if I can jump in there, because I think, you know, we're still talking about this uh, description of the deficit. And one of the things that was really uh, kind of um, enlightening in your book was the fact that technology, because it demands less of us, Mm. actually diminishes. Right. Because we don't produce. Um, Produce is probably not the helpful word there. but grow. Grow or, you know, or relate. Or relate. And so... You know, in some sense, you're describing a situation where humanity, if you want to talk about it that way, has simply gone passive, waiting for technology to solve its problem without even participating. Yes, yes. This dream of doing magic is kind of the dream that I wouldn't have to uh, exert myself in the world or become someone different. It's kind of power without relationship, power without growth. And what happens, the more I let the devices do the work for me, the less there is for me to do as a human being. And this is true. I, I talk in the book about, you know, a person, if we take Jesus at his word, that the great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, then what it is to be a person is to be this heart, soul, mind, strength complex designed for love. And the the fundamental problem with the modern era is it really was not built for heart, soul, mind, strength, complex design for love. It certainly is designed to relieve our bodies of a lot of uh, effort and exertion. But at this point, I mean, maybe at some point that was helpful. It relieved people of burdens bodies can't bear for a whole lifetime. But now we're all just way too inactive, right? We don't ever do anything with our bodies, hardly, especially if you're kind of a screen worker, a knowledge worker, and so Mm -hmm. many people are these days. But it also paid very little attention. The construction of modernity paid very little attention to the fact that we're emotional beings, that we're we're not just rational creatures. We're equally emotional. We think think as much through emotion as through reason. We, We are ensouled creatures. We have a depth of self that can't be exhausted by just what we think or even just what we feel. Um, And the modern world just is not designed to develop these capabilities together, Um, which means if it's going to happen, it's going to happen to some extent in countercultural resistance to the way of the Mm -hmm. modern world. Mm -hmm. And it's going to require intentionality that I think has been hard to come by when we were seduced by the magic. 
Well, uh, countercultural is very much uh, on our screen, and I'm sure mm. uh, you know we might want to move there at some point. But I still think that you know, I it's more, it's helpful to to allow people to see into their situation, so that if loneliness is an issue, and if relationships are so much of what you know, kind of um, uh, cares for that loneliness. Mm-hmm. Then, what does it mean to live in uh, in a culture in which our relationships are made easy by technology, and so we find ourselves <laughs> sort of, you know, searching out tribes of people that we already agree with and don't have to negotiate anything? Oh, um, that's asking less of us, and we put less in, and so the relationships we come up with are hollow. I mean, I think I think your analysis is helping people, or helping me certainly, kind of step into that a little further and see. What is the emptiness there in this this magic yeah. promise of technology? Yeah, that's such an important point. I I think that the seeds of what has gone wrong were planted a very long time ago. Um, I mean, not that long ago. I mean, really, the truth is my great-grandparents lived with very little of what I would call technology, things that kind of operate on their mm-hmm. own and displace and replace human beings with their own autonomy. Um, that's a pretty new thing, about a 100-year-old story, let's say. But but the acute phase happened when we started to be able to apply all these technological dreams to our relational lives. <laughs> so uh, it was one thing when media was broadcast media and basically gave you uh, no doubt, highly commercialized, consumer-oriented visions of the good life mediated through celebrities on a screen that the whole family watched together in the living room. It's another thing when media becomes something I, I hold in my hand, this little device of my smartphone interposes itself, even in my most primary relationships with my family, with, uh, you know, with my friends, and gives me these very thin, but also very effortless and seemingly effective ways, efficient ways, certainly, of communicating with them. So, and then when you add that, uh, then you take all of our uh, human, like, we're just built for relationship, we're built for sociability. And you put that at the service of uh, selling advertising alongside of it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, and and design a whole platform or series of platforms that really ultimately are not designed around the question, what makes for the deepest, most flourishing, most lasting, most fruitful relationships, but what keeps people watching the little screen? <laughs> That's the goal mm-hmm, of Facebook. Mm-hmm. That's the goal of Twitter. That's the goal of Instagram, now owned by Facebook. <laughs> uh, that is certainly the goal of TikTok, which is the latest wave. Like the thing it's trying to do is keep you watching. And it doesn't, and it will mobilize your design for relationality in order to get you there. But that's not what it's optimizing for. It's not optimizing for being a heart, soul, mind, strength, complex design for love. So this all got way more acute once it infiltrated the, the primary goal of a human life, which is a life of love. It was one thing when industrialization just affected the life of work. I think that did a lot of damaging things to the way we worked in the world, but at least it didn't touch, you know, the heart of being human. But now the heart of being human has been <laughs> infiltrated uh, by the dream of magic. And it's not going very well, honestly, for anybody ex- uh, except the advertisers. They're, they're doing okay. <laughs> Even even they aren't doing that well. Like it's not working. None of it's actually working that well, to be totally honest. Yeah, there aren't a lot of advertisers who are going to explain to you how not lonely they are. <laughs> right, exactly. Right, yeah. Exactly. Uh, it's just this, the whole thing is quite rickety. Um, but it, it does, it does answer cer- certain human hungers. Like the idea that yeah. just with a click, 
I can get people to pay attention to me. I can get people to validate me. I can have my point of view reinforced. These are very powerful motivators. Uh, I, I sometimes think of them as micro rewards. They're not truly lastingly rewarding, but they are, you know, in the moment kind of rewarding. And, and we're all hooked in a way on those little micro rewards. It's interesting because it, you use the word recognition, like we're all seeking for, right mm-hmm. from the very beginning recognition. And, yeah. and you can look at recognition in a couple of different ways. I mean, one is the, the sort of rewards or awards, right? That you, you, uh, you are recognized yes, right, for things, right? right? Um, but the way you're meaning it is to be seen, to be recognized, to be fully known, seen and known, right? right? That's, That's what right. we long for. But in that in that exchange that you're talking about on social media, you, mm. you get these little mm. micro rewards. You wow. get recog- recognized, but not not known not, fully not and loved known. anyway. Not that kind of deep, you know, I'm seen, I'm loved, right? Yes. Wow, that's so that's so right, Lisa. And I think what strikes me about that is that 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 latter kind or that realer kind is also far more vulnerable than just getting a few likes for something that in the end I put up because I thought it would be, it would be rewarded. You know, I I was pretty sure when I tweeted that thing that it was funny, I was pretty sure when I put up that picture that people would envy my life or, you know, think, Mm -hmm. think, Oh, that looks nice. But the seeing and knowing that we're, that we actually long for comes at the price of being seen and known in aspects of our lives that are not awardable <laughs> and not ad, not admirable, not easy to look at, uh, not easy for us to see mirrored back in the disappointment of a friend or a child or a spouse um, yeah. and the ruptures that happen in real relationships. Um, yes. And that's probably the thing that social media is worst at is rupture and repair. Even though that's the way trust is built, the true way mm-hmm. trust is built is through some distance growing between two people that's then overcome through a new act of love. Mm-hmm. And that is very hard to do uh, in a mediated way. And yet it's, it's actually the foundation of trust. So we've replaced the kinds of relationships that could actually lead to what we're longing for with with a, a platform that will never, ever give you what you actually need to feel truly recognized in that deeper sense. If I can um, kind of jump in here to turn the conversation a little bit, because this is part of what fascinated me about your argument, because in some sense, you know, you talk early on in the book, I think the language you use were, you know, that there are redemptive moves that people mm. can make. You don't yeah. have to, uh, you know, kind of satisfy uh, or, 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 or allow yourself to be satisfied by the default settings of technology. There are things that you can do. And then your book goes on to talk about technology and its, its effect and so forth. And then at some point, uh, you even make the statement that, um, you know, the second half of the book is going to talk about how to deal with that technology. Yes. And you become absolutely non-technological at that point. In other words, and this is what you're arguing for right here, that redemption in a technologically driven world will not come by being more tech savvy. It isn't outsmarting the technology <laughs> because the example you gave here about redemption or, or, you know, this kind of reconciliation is when things are broken, technology is yeah. not going to fix it. What is going to yeah. fix it is the hard human work of being an open, vulnerable soul. And yes. so 
you've just laid out an argument that says that, you know, do we understand, you know, the, the impact of the defaults of technology and how it is making us lonely? We need to be able to redeem that. And oh, by the way, it's not by using more technology. <laughs> it's by being more human. So anyhow, I, I just, that's intriguing I, for me. Uh, that is intriguing. And you are right that, that in the end, I don't believe there are, you know, technological solutions to the problems that technology has created for us. If you, especially, and maybe only if you define technology as this quest to do magic in the, in the world, mm-hmm. I, I do think we could still redeploy all that we've learned through science about the way the world works into a different kind of application that wouldn't have this magical disengaging quality. And so that's one of the redemptive moves I talk about, which I I talk about as moving from devices to instruments. And instruments are potentially very complex, uh, you know, you could call them high-tech things that don't disengage people and don't displace people. But it is true that we will, I don't think we would, we will ever make that move unless we've redesigned something deeper than just our technology, unless we've redesigned actually the way we live together. And then ultimately the, the deep dream of our lives uh, is the deep dream, you know, power and magic, or is the deep dream love and vulnerability uh, in the book? I call it moving from the dream of being charmed to the dream of being mm-hmm. blessed. So it is, it's absolutely true that what's really at stake is what do we think, what are we aiming for primarily in our lives as persons and our lives together? And of course we could scale this up to our lives as congregations, our lives, maybe even in certain senses as denominations. I don't know. You know, what are we aiming for and can magic help us get there? And I think the answer will always turn out to be no, actually magic just creates problems trying to get there. This is great. Andy, because now you're speaking directly into our work right now in conversation with Gil's paper, right? And this notion of Jacob's bones, what are the core truths, values, practices that we carry forward? And, and, and really you're talking about how do we get to the, really the deep essence of what it means to be community. Mm. And, and so, so I Mm. really want to, I want to riff around this a little bit, um, because you do a beautiful job referencing scripture and pointing us to lessons of the early Christian movement to talk about relationships and community. And, and, and yet here we are today, not, we're not just surrounded by, we're inundated by it's uh, technology and it's a part of our everyday Mm. breath and life and being as individuals and as and frankly, as churches, especially after the yeah. pandemic, everybody's online yes. and they're figuring out how to yes. create community online and what that space makes possible. So I don't know, what is the role of the church in helping people reclaim mm. relationship in, as you describe it, you know, mm. in the midst, not, I mean, technology is not the answer, but we are in the midst of a, of a world of technology, right? Mm. Well, there's no doubt it's, uh, for some length of time, it's going to be the cultural water we swim in. Uh, it, it could fail, by the way. Uh, I don't think we should assume it will be uh, forever present uh, as a dominating force in the way it is today. Uh, the Roman Empire seemed pretty powerful in AD 60 and uh, in roughly AD 450, the the barges stopped bringing grain up the river from North Africa, and they never came again. And uh, so some of these empires have shelf lives. <laughs> and our movement, the Christian movement, uh, God's renewal movement that really begins with Abram and Sarai, 
does not have a shelf life. So the first thing I would say is, if the church is not doing something that could outlast its technological milieu, we're not doing the right thing. If the church can only survive on the terms of the empire we're currently in, that's a, a, a big missed opportunity and a real vulnerability because I don't know how long all this technology, which ultimately is sustained, you know, uh, yes, it's sustained by uh, computers and, and electronic connections. It's also sustained for the moment by the printing of trillions of dollars that we have invented just in the last couple of years. We don't know how that's going to play out. So you've got to be doing something deeper than just surfing the current cultural trend. Um, that being said, we're all, we all live in the midst of it. So we just have to make sure we're keeping our eyes on the main thing. <laughs> and what is the main thing? It is, it is the bringing of, I would have to think it's something like the bringing of persons into close enough, uh, close enough proximity with one another and with God that uh, they can be known and therefore uh, forgiven and therefore loved and therefore transformed. And then inviting more people into that circle. And this is what the first Christians did, partly because they had no other option. They they couldn't access, access Caesar's technology in the first few centuries. In that way, they were different from us. We can deploy it and feel like we're getting something done. And I think the great challenge of living in an empire is the way the empire gets stuff done feels really plausible. You're like, well, let's try to do some of that on behalf of the gospel. <laughs> but uh, the first Christians didn't really have that option. Some of them seem to have been in Caesar's household, but they didn't have access to Caesar's military his money, his, you know, his might. So they had to do it totally off the books of the empire. And I think one of the biggest challenges of pastoral ministry right now is I don't know how you extricate yourself from all the programs and uh, kind of products that people expect you to provide as a religious service provider in our world. But you have to realize it's not going to get you to the, to use the language of Jesus, the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom of God, the reign of God, you're not going to get there by providing these religious goods and services that your system has been set up to provide and that technology can help you optimize. You're only going to get there Mm -hmm. by finding ways to reinvest in small communities, small enough for people to actually be known and to actually encounter God together. And I think the task of every shepherd, whether you're ordained or or a lay shepherd like I am, (laughs) is to find ways to circumvent the production system and get people into real relationship. And, and this is where you go, you move from device to instrument. Like there are technologies that are tools exactly. for yes. that. Exactly. But, but they become in service to building real, yeah. authentic, trusting relationships, right? That's beautiful. In fact, let me give an example from the pandemic. So I, I don't think a lot of uses of technology during the pandemic were well advised for various reasons. But I will say one of the trans- most transformative small groups of people I've ever been in was a group of six people who met uh, for a while every week during the pandemic. Uh, there was nothing else to do. We were from all over the United States. Uh, we had some pre-existing relationships, but no one in the group knew everyone in the group. Well, we now all very, very deeply know one another. And God has worked really powerfully in this group of six folks who have been sharing. We, we actually started just by sharing our life story one, one at a time, as deeply and honestly as we could. Um, and then have just continued to meet and pray for one another. We've now met together twice in person with our families. It's a, the group is a group of people who are, have kind of public roles, but we've involved our, our spouses, our children, mm-hmm. our, um, and 
let me mention that a key to that though was it was only six people because I actually think six is Zoom's maximum for community. In person, I think 12 is about the optimal size of a group that can be in a room and really have a transformative small group experience. 12 is kind of the upper limit. And there's really neurology involved here, like how we attend to others' faces and bodies and what's going on in one another. We can do that with about 12 people in a room, but you put 12 people on Zoom, it's a, it's a large group. It's a, it's a crowd. It's not a, it's not a community. So we have to, if we're, if you're going to use virtual, you got to shrink everything. And you have to realize once it gets above about six, everybody knows no one's really paying attention. <laughs> and, uh, and probably more like four, like we actually have four on the screen right now. And I can just barely keep, pay attention to uh, you, Gil and Lisa and Blair, the <laughs> yeah. producer, and, and keep track of how, how are we doing? Are people still engaged? Should I, am I talking too long? You know, all this stuff that's just the, the basics of being known. You got to shrink that when you're virtual, uh, much smaller than you think. And I think what I wish had not been so much energy had not been wasted on was broadcasting uh, very, very poor simulations of uh, communal worship when, in fact, we could have been using the time to create these microgroups that could have been very formative. This is all very Wesleyan, by the way. <laughs> like, And I actually yes, think... Yes. I, I don't, I, I feel free to like just cut this part, but it strikes me, you know, John and Charles and, and their friends were, were called the Methodists because they first got very, very excited about a bunch of essentially spiritual techniques, things that could help them, you know, they, they hoped uh, grow in their seriousness and their faith. But the Methodist movement does not take off until that technique addled, obsessed John Wesley goes to Georgia. It gets to- totally messed up uh, in this very, very strange relationship and heads back to England with his tail between his legs, has this incredible encounter with these Moravians. Then that leads to this uh, encounter on Aldersgate Street with the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think the danger of being Methodist is you think it's about the methods, <laughs> which leads you to be especially susceptible to the lure of technique and technology, hmm. when in fact the power of it was these small groups that met after that revolutionary encounter with the personal love of God that unleashed a kind of real power that, yes, could be assisted by certain spiritual methods, but it was never about the methods when it actually started growing as a beneficial movement in the history of Christianity. <laughs> All right. I love well, it. But sorry, that was just extra. No, 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 no apologies. That's, that was that's, awesome. That's absolutely perfect. <laughs> and, and reaching back is, is really helpful here, too, because, I mean, one of the things that I am feeling so much is we are now walking into that, you know, that kind of countercultural role that, that the Christian community now has to reclaim yeah. for itself. Yeah. And it, it really isn't there at this point. I mean, I'm a man of a certain age in this conversation. Mm. And so my <laughs> recollection, I, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but my go back and, you know, uh, what I find is that recently I've been uh, revisiting uh, Gibson Winner's book on the suburban captivity of the church mm. written around 1960. And part of what he was talking about at that point is how the church the congregations and their their systems simply were captured by the current cultural state Mm -hmm. and were living into it. Uh, I will say the word thoughtlessly, Mm -hmm. uh, which is not a helpful word here, but I mean, it's kind of an unconscious living into it. Okay. We are now describing much the same thing. Instead of a suburban captivity, we're talking about a technological captivity of the church. Yeah. And in fact, we end up playing their game. Exactly. Um, 
Okay, let's go to that point that you made, that technology is, in fact, asking less of people as part of their promise. And the end result is people end up being less than they could be. We move into a pandemic and churches move directly onto Zoom and they ask less of the people to be part of the community. And people ended up being less than they could have been. Uh, so, yes. you know, is not a part of this, uh, you know, somehow helping people see their captivity so that they want freedom. Oh, man. Well, and part of the problem is mm, some of the captives are the, are the leaders. Uh, yes. You know, here's an example <laughs> of it. I've heard from many pastors, and by the way, I don't, Gosh, we were all doing our best in the midst of the pandemic. And I don't blame anyone for any choice that anybody made to try to do their best. You bet. That's, you know, we all made mistakes. We all thought some things would work that didn't. What I do get a little impatient with is when people say, well, but we've actually seen our audience grow uh, when Mm -hmm. we went online. (laughs) Well, sure, because you made it so much easier for people to show up. But what's happening transformationally? How do you know that what you are doing is now not just... Uh, one more mediated stream of a kind of soothing sensation of religiosity because people right. people want to feel like their lives are not a total mess and that they're connected with God and they and they seek out religious service providers to give them a feeling that they are doing basically okay with God and the religious service providers do that through certain kinds of music certain kinds of uh, visual expression right. and certain kinds of words that make you think okay I think I'm I'm okay. And, you know, you can get an hour of that maybe on Sunday and feel, switch that off and think, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much good. <laughs> That's yeah. not the Christian life. Right. The Christian life is this discovery. I am pretty much not good. I am in huge trouble. And God has re- is in the business and process of rescuing me through other people, through extremely uncomfortable experiences that disclose more about my own sinfulness and short-sightedness and the shame that is deep in my heart and all this other stuff and brings me out of it, right? Is that happening as your audience grows? I I just, I mean, right. praise God if it is. But I think we're mistaking uh, a sensation of efficacy for actual right. lasting right. transformation. Right, right, and, right. And that's why we get captive to these things is that they are the grooves of our culture when the whole United States is suburbanizing as it was doing in the 50s and 60s. And population growth is just shifting. Like, you know, the truth is you can, you know, put up a sign and people will come because they've just moved to the neighborhood. When you're just trailing demographic trends, of course you're going to appear to be effective. <laughs> <laughs> and right. when everybody's stuck watching Zoom, uh, for a while, your audience is going to go up. Of course, you're going to feel affected. But is it actually going to be multi-generational growth and, mm-hmm. and sustainable growth? I think rarely when you are surfing whatever empire you're part of. So let's stay with this because I think you're stating that the very real angst anxiety, worry of our, mm. the leaders that the pastors we're talking mm. with who are faithful and courageous and, you know, dedicated, all, all the things, right? And, and exhausted and, and all those things are <laughs> yeah. real too. Of <laughs> and, course. Um, but are asking, okay, are we really forming relationships here? Like, is there really a difference in people's lives? Is transformation really taking place? And, mm. and so, 
Um, I, I think, you know, now that we're kind of on the tail end of pandemic and, and, and we're sort of saying, okay, everything's different now. We're not going back, but what does it look like? Like how, so I want us to just, again, play with this notion and maybe think aloud a little bit, you know, what are, what are faithful steps? What's one faithful step or what are faithful Mm. steps that, that leaders, lay and clergy can take in helping their congregations lean into relationship and Mm. lean into transformation? Mm. You willing to play with that with us for a little bit? Of course, of course. (laughs) I mean, the most basic question for anyone who is entrusted with any kind of leadership is, do you have a three and do you have a 12? (laughs) These are the basic units of personal development uh, as best as I understand it. In other words, and I obviously don't, didn't pick those numbers out of thin air. uh, I don't, and I also don't think they're like hard. I don't mean 12 rather than 11 Mm -hmm. or 10. Mm -hmm. I mean, 12 rather than 50 Mm -hmm. and three rather than 12, because some, there's a depth of trust that happens in a circle of three that can't happen in a circle of 12. And then 12 is this kind of, I think, neurological limit to the number of people who can actually all attend to one another. I sometimes define community as a place where no one can be missing without everyone noticing. And in person, that that's usually about 12 people. If it's more than 12, somebody can step out of the room and you can't quite keep track of who's there, who's not. But with 12, when Judas leaves, uh, everybody's like, uh, where did he go? <laughs> so the three and the 12 are your real work as a leader. These are the people that you are close enough to, to be known by them, ideally in ways that step far beyond your role or your profession or your position. And you are close enough to know them, all of their secret uh, fears, hopes, dreams, losses, laments, and, and you are together discovering what Jesus is doing in the lives of these people. I, I do not know any other way to actually grow lasting discipleship than that. <laughs> now, the, t- the groups of 12 can definitely benefit by gathering together, you know, going to the cathedral, as it were, and, and being caught up in something way bigger than ourselves that, that validates and reinforces, like, we are part of something of immense significance and, and of genuine scale in the world. But that, can, that experience is not developmental in the way that the relational proximity of 3 and 12 is. And I just think this is what was genius about the class meeting. And the, like, this is, again, this is like such a fundamental Methodist <laughs> insight. And the trick is how to keep all the other plates spinning while you do the real work of the three and the 12 and then helping to replicate that. And in your church, uh, you should, it shouldn't just be the pastor, for goodness sakes, who has a three and a 12. It should be anyone with ca- capability for leadership. Uh, that, I think that would be the beginning. I mean, what do you think, Lisa? Is that enough of an answer? So I love that. And I actually, uh, it, it seems really important to me that you started with the pastor. The pastor needs three and 12. Has to, has right? to. Right? I mean, you start to. there and then, so it's not, this is not about programming. No. You know, this is not religious goods and services, as you said earlier. This is this is about your own deep work as a leader. Yep. Yep. And as you said, replicating so that every other disciple in that mix is creating groups of three and twelve. You know, has that has their three and yep. has their twelve. And then what yep. does that look like in your community around you? Right. Yep. In other words, you're building yep. relationships with folks who are not necessarily in the pew, but you who are your three and your twelve and totally. what does that look like? Totally. It's yeah. it, these numbers came 
obviously they're numbers from the ministry of Jesus, but, but they crystallize for me in my study of how culture is actually created. And it, it's, uh, it's really striking to me that uh, with, without notable exception, and I've been looking for exceptions for 15 years now, since I first started thinking about this new innovation, let's call it in culture happens in these very small circles. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's fascinating. Like, you know, the, the, Largest scale things our culture creates, I venture to say, are feature films and jumbo jets. <laughs> uh, you can end up with thousands and thousands of people working on feature film, thousands and thousands of people involved in the fabrication of a, a commercial airliner. But I will tell you, all, all those things, especially films, which are, are so obviously creative, a jumbo jet is also a very creative act, but they all started with a group that could fit in a single vehicle <laughs> that could sit around a very small table and imagine something that didn't exist yet. And then those three got about 12 people involved. And, you know, in the days back when movies had posters, which I guess they still do, if you, there are cinemas, probably a few left you can go see, you know, there, there'll be maybe a little more than 12 names on the poster. It's the cast, it's the cinematographer, the director, the couple producers, a few other roles, you know, maybe it's not exactly a dozen, but it's a very small number compared to the the thousands of people who will eventually contribute in some way and the millions of people who eventually consume it. So the problem is we think culture making requires scale because we think about the millions of consumers, but the actual creation of new culture happens in these tiny groups. And it's because creation requires trust. It's the most risky thing human beings do to decide, hey, let's make something that doesn't exist in the world. Like, for example, the Igniting Imagination podcast. Like, well, that doesn't exist. Who's going to even bother? It's not going to be a millions of people are not going to bother to create a podcast like this, but three people will. Right. And I'm, I'm looking at three of them on our little screen that helps us have this conversation. And then about 12 people will come around and help make it happen. I bet you guys could right now name a few more people who are really involved, even though they're not on this recording today. And then, you know, you, you can have a huge audience, but it starts with a really small group. And if you want to be about innovation in the world, you've got to be about very small circles of very deep trust. <laughs> That's the only way it happens. It's beautiful. Really? Well, it's beautiful. And it, it resonates so much with the conversations that we've been having now for years. I mean, we started with this notion from Margaret Wheatley that every idea that changed the world started as a conversation between two people. I love it. Exactly. And, exactly. And we have been, we have been really focused on that. What happens if you get the right question to a table and you get the right legs under the table huh. and just let it go without yeah. prescribing? Okay. But you know, the thing is the part of what we're talking about here is helping, helping Christian community to claim something that it knows about this already. Mm. I mean, this isn't, this isn't a, a brand new idea for mm. for Christian mm. community and for congregations. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from Tom Long in his book on testimony, which in fact was nothing more than an aside when he wrote it, mm. simply said that uh, there is no other place that you will go to, peop- to be with people that you would not choose to be with under other circumstances. Now, what that says is that when you are in Christian community, you are going to be with people that you might not agree with all the time, or you might not even like all the time, but your relationship is one of commitment that says that you're going to stay there and negotiate it. Yeah. Okay. And so, and that's what you're talking about. Trust. Trust is a relationship negotiated. 
Okay, but I mean, if you think about bloggers and the way that they measure their effectiveness, you get to say, well, I get 350,000 people. Okay, those people are negotiating nothing. They're not even in relationship. Wow. So how do you help Christian community simply reclaim what it already knows? (laughs) And and I I think you are absolutely right. You know, the the 3 and 12 and (laughs) the scale at which love can be you know, enacted. Yeah. Um, so I, I think this, but you know, some of this is simply saying, remember who we are. Mm-hmm. Remember what we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember what story is driving us and how, okay. So, you know, I, I think this resonates so, so deeply. Mm. And this is why in the, in the book, the life we're looking for, I, I mean, I, I really felt called, I guess I would say to do this, somewhat confusing thing and make a book that is ostensibly about technology relationships in the modern era to interrupt it over and over by going back to the first century. And I kind of anchor (laughs) a whole thread of the book in this little glimpse we get of a particular community at a particular moment. We get the glimpse in Romans 16. And it's partly because I think the real path to imagination in our moment is extracting ourselves enough from this set of issues and problems we have and and going back to our source, which is sacred scripture and is the, the community of Jesus, uh, especially in those first months, years, decades after the resurrection of Jesus, where just the whole set of possibilities unfolded very suddenly. And, you know, it, one thing you said, Gil, that struck me is I, I, that, that tendency for us to form these groups on the basis of affinity. That is, we're going to be with people we would like to be anywhere. Like, Oh, I'd like to have a beer with you. Like, that's probably not a very Methodist thing to say, but, uh, but you know, what, would you like I to be my spot? Okay. <laughs> <Yeah, I think laughs> um, these days, uh, it is striking about Jesus, right? That, that it is precisely a measure of Jesus's transformative life. That while, of course, because of his redemptive mission within the story of Israel, the, the, the men he chose to, as be, to be the 12 were all Jews. They were about as heterogeneous a collection of Jews as you right. could imagine. Right. I mean, zealots, tax collectors, all that stuff. And then, of course, we know that, in fact, women are, are with him the whole time, are providing for him. He teaches them just as he teaches the men. And then the moment this breaks out after Pentecost into the wider Greco-Roman world, the assemblages of people are so not based on affinity. And in fact, the kind of the burden of the apostolic leadership is to not let it uh, get reduced to affinity. And it just strikes me like that's because Jesus and those who are deeply transformed by Jesus live this life of love that is not just about like dealing with like, but it is the total opposite of the tribal blogger who who accumulates an audience of like-minded people. That's not the, that's not simply (laughs) the way of love. Uh, Love has another agenda. Yep. And that's the hard work and the messy story of Acts, right? Over and over exactly. and over again. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Andy, this has been an amazing conversation. We want to ask you the final question that we're asking all of our guests this season. And that is, when you imagine the church 20, 30 years from now for these next generations, what do you hope is true? Well, I'll say I actually think in longer increments, I I tend to think minimum three generations. So if it's okay, I'll answer for for my my (laughs) great-grandchildren's era, should I 
have those. I'll have them spiritually, if not biologically. Mm. I mean, uh, it's awfully simple. The word is living and active. And so what I imagine is some 15-year-old who I can't even picture where they'll be, what their world will be like 100 years from now, uh, opening up the Bible and discovering just wonders and surprises in it because they're there for every generation to find. And that just astonishment that this set of ancient texts speaks <laughs> and moves and transforms. I, I hope and be, I believe, I just, because uh, this is God's work to sustain that uh, that 15 year old will be having that experience somewhere in the world. And, and then the other thing, I mean, this is a very basic answer, but I just, um, I look, I imagine that 15-year-old having been perhaps confirmed in the baptism that they made or was made on their behalf, uh, stepping forward uh, in a service of worship and receiving the body and blood of Jesus and hearing the words, we're doing this until he comes again. We're remembering his death until he comes again. And it's if those two kinds of things are happening, I don't really care what else is happening. And if those Mm. two things are not happening, I don't really care what else is happening. (laughs) (laughs) But I so believe that God is superintending his mighty acts of redemption unto the, unto the end of the age and that Jesus is with us, that I just fully believe that um, three generations from now and and many, many beyond words going to be alive and uh, the body and blood of Jesus will be raised up in remembrance of him until he comes again. Wow. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for your the depth of your um, uh, conviction and thoughtfulness, but but messy uh, compassion for the world and for human beings, and even for the church. and hmm. And it shows, and it's beautiful, and it's it's both convicting and hopeful. And I appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Igniting Imagination is a production of the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.